Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, this week, I was, uh, my wife and I were at dinner with a group of friends, and we were sitting alongside of uh, this is really cool restaurant overlooking the beach, but kind of lifted up a little bit, and then kind of this glass window, and um, this is embarrassing. Let's go ahead and tell you in advance. Um, felt like I should probably tell you where this is going. <clears throat> and so we're sitting there, and um, the sun is setting. You know, it's just really kind of cool setting, and we're laughing, joking. And, and out of the corner of my eye, I notice uh, this, like, teenage couple um, kind of walking along the beach. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, like, working his game. And, um, and so they, they get, like, and they, they don't see us. I mean, we're, like, right at the table looking down at them. And they, they lay their blanket. They have this blanket, and they just kind of lay it out right on the beach, the waves crashing up, and it's this, like, thick, kind of comfy-looking blanket. And, um, you know, he, he, like, immediately tries to lay down, and she's, like, sitting up, and we're like, uh-huh. And, um, and I'm like, I-, I wish I knew this, this girl's father, because this dude would probably need to know about that. And um, so we're sitting there, and we're, like, laughing and joking. We're, like, all married couples, right? We're all going home together that night, but we're, like, like thinking this is the funniest thing ever because this kid is trying to get a kiss as hard as he can. And as he's like trying to do his move, she's sliding and she's like the edge of her blanket and leaning out and we're like dying laughing. And somebody at the table says, hey, if you bet me money, I'll go down there and pretend to be a relational coach. But like, are you having trouble? It looks like you are. Let me introduce myself. And so we're laughing. We're like, imagine if he did. You know, that'd be really funny. And we're like joking because, you know, we're all married. And it's like, why is this so entertaining? And I think it's because we remember those awkward moments. And, and all of a sudden, we look, and one of the guys at the table is gone. And we're still down there, and we're looking at the couple. And here he comes, walking up. And he gets, so here's the blanket, and he gets to the edge of the blanket, and he just sits down. And the, the, the couple, like, you know, this teenage couple that had been kind of looking, they're drawing in the sand, you know, trying to, you know, dude's trying to work his game, and, and, and like, all of a sudden, the girl, like, notices him, and she's, like, hitting him. She's like, do you, do you see that? And he turns around, and he's like, oh, my goodness, and, and they're talking, and they kind of shift their bodies a little bit, but their shoes are really close to them, so they start to grab their shoes and slide it, because I guess they're concerned this old, creepy man is going to steal their shoes, and, and so he's just sitting there. He's not looking at them, and, and they keep turning around looking at him, and finally, they, they, she's like, I, I can't. Like, I just can't be here, and, and so she gets up, and he gets up. They get their blanket, and they walk off. And we are like, there's about eight of us around the table, and we are dying laughing because somehow we just interrupted and interfered with, like, teenage love, okay? And, we're, and as we were, like, roll out, I looked at Jenny, I was like, this may have been the funniest thing I think I've been part of in a long time, which is kind of sad for me because I really enjoyed every bit of it. I might have taken video of it so that I can go back in low moments and watch it again because it was the funniest thing ever watching this couple be surprised. And here's what I loved about it. It's like we didn't show up that night anticipating, hey, we're going to see a teenage couple and we're going to totally surprise them and pull a prank uh, and be juvenile and um, act like teenagers ourselves. But we totally did. And what was wonderful is I'll never forget that moment. And as a group of friends, like, we'll never forget that moment. 20 years from now, we're going to say, hey, remember that time at the beach 
that we did that with that couple, right? And here's what I love about it is that surprising moments like that, they stick with you. They have a way to kind of lodge themselves deep inside and you don't forget them. And what I want to do today as we continue our series is I want to take you to a surprising moment. I want to take you to a moment in the Bible that maybe on the surface wouldn't be that surprising to you and I, but for the original hearers, it was in complete surprise to them. And it had the same kind of effect. It would have lodged itself inside. It would have stuck, and they would have never forgotten it. It would have gone with them. And unlike my story, which has no significant impact at all outside of the fact that forever this young couple will tell the day about some creepy man sliding up beside them. And we'll tell the opposite story about betting a creepy man to go slide up beside of them. This moment stuck and made a difference. And it made a difference 3,000 years ago. And here's the thing. I think it can make a significant difference in our lives today. In fact, it has the power to transform. It has the power to impact. And it has the power to help us beat the odds. Because we all want more than just average. We all want more than just okay. We, we want to have great relationships. We want to experience a great and full life. And this surprising statement gives us an example and shows us how we can beat the odds. It's found in the book of Proverbs, which if you've been here before, um, you, you know, I really like the book of Proverbs. It's one of those profound books that no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if you're here today or you're listening online and you're not really sure you even believe this thing called the Christian faith, it has the power to impact your life, even if you're not sure where, what, where and what you believe. It's so practical. It's so in the details of everyday life that it's just, it's a great book to, to read regularly. It started off originally in its kind of beginning form as a parenting manual. It was written by the wisest man who has ever lived. And I don't know about you, but whenever I get an opportunity to sit down with a mentor or someone I look up to, I want to learn from them. And this is essentially having the opportunity to sit down with the wisest person who has ever lived. Wouldn't you want to know what they think about the details of life? Wouldn't you want to know what they think about parenting and what their advice is for relationships and finances? And we have an opportunity to get that. This guy named Solomon, who was the king of this ancient country known as Israel that still exists today, collected his thoughts, and from his supernatural wisdom and from his ordinary, extraordinary experiences, what we have are the insights in the Proverbs that are kind of make up the book of Proverbs. What I want to do today is point to a specific passage. Here's the thing. It's really simple. It's a really short one. You're probably almost going to be offended when I read it because you're going to be like, I already, right? Like, there's nothing surprising about that, but there's, there's nothing that profound about it. But I want you to hold on with me because Part of surprise is the way it grabs you. Part of the surprise is in the way that you don't see it coming. And just to give you a heads up, there's surprises tucked inside of this that's meant to speak to us today. Um, it's Proverbs 16.32. And Jason referenced earlier the Encounter Church app, and we put a lot of thought into that app. And it's only with each, with each month, it keeps getting better. And um, in our message notes, we've already loaded this passage. We've already put some sections for you to take notes. Um, we've already put some links for you to take some next steps out of it. So that, that's our job of kind of helping come alongside of you um, so that you can beat the odds. And so inside of the Encounter Church app and message notes, you'll see Proverbs 16.32. And here, here's what it says. It says that better a patient person 
than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. And I'll read it again. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. And the reason I said the surprise element is because this is an incredibly surprising statement. The way, the, the way I felt at dinner this week, when I saw him walk up on the beach and sit down, would have been very much similar to what the people reading this passage would have felt the first time they heard it in this context. Because you have to remember, this, this is 3,000 years ago. This is Games of Throne kind of environments where people are constantly battling and it's army against army, it's battalion against battalion, it's forces against forces. And when people hear greatness, when people hear strength, the word that comes to mind is military. To be a warrior was to be at the top of the game. To be a warrior was to be the greatest. And so when Solomon utters this statement, it's surprising. Even more so because Solomon is not only the king of Israel. Solomon's the son of David, Israel's first great king. And here's what you need to know about David. David was the embodiment of a warrior. He, I mean, he makes the guy from Taken and Braveheart look like B-team dudes. I mean, this guy, people made up songs about David. They're like, hold on a second, Solomon. You said better a patient person than a warrior. Do you realize your dad was the greatest warrior ever? Do you realize your dad was like the, the man? People made up songs about your dad. Like he has killed tens of thousands. Like he leads armies and destroys cities. And like he's so famous that even today, even if you didn't grow up in church, like He's, his name gets associated with great sports challenges. It's a David and Goliath struggle today, right? I mean, like, this is David who defeated Goliath. Like, Solomon, are you kidding me? You grew up in the household of the greatest warrior who has ever lived. Why would you say something like this? In a day and age where to be great was to be strong and powerful and to be a warrior Solomon understood something. Solomon's answer to people who would have been surprised and said, David, you grew up in the house of David. Solomon would say, yes, that's why I say this statement. Because people sing songs about the people that my father slayed. They sing songs about the cities that were taken. But I watched first hand, a life that was hindered, a life that was damaged, because as many cities as my father could take, as many peoples as he can control, he couldn't control himself. That I watched my father who had taken cities be taken down by a woman, my mom. See, Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the woman that David ultimately will end up killing a man over and will ultimately end up robbing his life of the peace and the tranquility that he could have had. Solomon grew up with a front row view 
of how the inner strength was far more important than the outer. And so that's why Solomon writes this. He's like, no, you don't understand. I watched my family destroyed by my father's inability to control himself. I watched my family ruined by his inability to reign in himself. And Solomon, remember, Solomon writes this first as a parenting guy. He's like, look, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I grew up watching my father make. It's like, sons and daughters, I don't want you to grieve the way I watched my father grieve. And I don't want you to feel what I felt being the son of the woman of the relationship that nearly took down my dad. Like, I'm invested in this advice to you, children. But see, the, the challenge with this proverb, even though that's a helpful insight, the, the challenge is that this is written 3,000 years ago, and it's not written in English. Solomon is the king of Israel. Their language is Hebrew. This originally is written in Hebrew, and it's in the writing of it in Hebrew that actually where the insight comes into. So while in English, we say better a patient person than a warrior. It's in the Hebrew, it's actually literally translated better a long nose than a warrior. Which doesn't have the same ring, does it? You're like, oh, yes, better to have a long nose. Totally makes sense. But a long nose was an idiom. He's not talking about Pinocchio, right? He's talking about this Jewish idiom that would have been instantly recognizable for the people who would have heard this phrase. See, to be long-nosed in the Jewish culture, what that meant, it didn't mean physically you had a long nose. It meant that you had an ability that, that was a little different than most. All of us, if you have a parent, you've experienced this, right? The moment where your name gets said in its entirety, and then they do this, they go, right? If you've ever seen your parent, or if you're a child, you've ever seen your parent, and they all of a sudden, like their face goes red, and they just start to, and they start breathing in, you're like, are you okay? Like, what is wrong with you? But you know if you've lived through it, what's about to happen. Because the moment they finish sucking in, they're about to unleash it right? And here was the Jewish idiom. Someone with a long nose could keep sucking in when most people couldn't. If you had a long nose, it meant that you went, and instead of unleashing, you could keep drawing in more and more and more air. It meant you had emotional control. That's what it meant to be long-nosed. You were in control of your emotions. You were not controlled by your emotions. That's what it meant. And I recognize for some of us, I just kind of weirded you out. Because I just said emotional control, and you were not expecting it to go that way. Because you're probably like me. If you've ever been to a restaurant, you know, when you walk into a restaurant and you've got a kid, they give you crayons, and they're like the, the dinky crayons. They're like three, and they don't really work very well. They always break no matter what. Okay, well, emotionally, that's me. I'm like three dinky crayons. This is my daughter. 
A couple weeks ago, or actually a couple months ago, my wife and I were at a marriage conference because it's good to keep investing in your marriage. And at that specific session, we were talking about emotional health and relationship. And this got handed out. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading over it. And there are over 100 emotions on this page. And I look at Jenny and I'm like, I've never even experienced most of these. Like, I didn't even know that was an emotion. Sneaky? Like, what is sneaky? Right? I mean, I'm like reading through this list, and I'm like, bashful? Ridiculous? I'm like, do you feel those? She's like, yeah, I feel those emotions. Glowing? Like, that's what lights do. She's like, I mean, yeah, I feel those. And that's the moment I hit, I realized I'm a restaurant crayon pack. Because I'm like happy, hungry, or here. Like, that's me. And, and my wife is this, but my daughter, man, if you want to get into the crayon, she's like the 200 super pack with colors like pumpkin shadow and periwinkle. Colors that I don't even understand or know how to use them. That's my five-year-old little girl. We weep about fairies not being real and unicorns not existing. She experiences all of those in the course of an hour. She emotes more in an hour than I do in an entire year. And sometimes I just look at my wife and I'm like, I don't understand what happened. Because we will go from like perturbed to resistant to petrified to dejected to anxious to contented to elated to silly all in the span of about 35 seconds. I'm not exaggerating. And I just step away, and I'm like, this is your child. I don't understand. Is, is this okay? Like, do we need to get a counselor for her? I have just to be honest with you. Like, I really, I'm that dinky restaurant crayon set. And some of you can probably connect with that. And some of you, you feel this every week. But the reality is it doesn't matter how many crayons you have in your box. We all have crayons. And we'll either be controlled by them or they will control us. And we get this, right? At a, at a, at a very kind of real level in life, we understand the power of emotions when they're not controlled. As parents, we know the moment when our kid does something, and instead of responding to that, we escalate, and we're like, if you do that, I will take every toy you will ever get away from you, right? We, and we escalate, because we've lost control. Or in those relational moments of conflict and tension, all of a sudden what spills out of us is frustration and anger and our voice gets loud and then the other one shuts down and stonewalls and won't talk anymore. And you're like, is everything okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Well, hey, t- t- just tell me. Nope. And they sit there and they're on their computer, on their phone, and you're getting stonewalled. And a day or two goes by And you know it's still not okay, but you never deal with it. Because one's aggressive and the other's passive. And we see this, right? I mean, emotionally, we live, some of us grew grew up in households where you knew when, if you made one of your parents angry, you were going to get the fury and the wrath. And you could tell almost by the way they pulled up in the yard. 
if this was a good or a bad day. Now, as adults, some of us understand while our parents came home frustrated or dejected or like just feeling ridiculous because they worked with some of the people you work with. They have your boss, right? And we know what it's like to share a cubicle or sit in a conference room with someone who does not have emotional control where everything, they take it personally and they lash out and they blow up and all the shrapnels left in the room when they walk out and everyone else is having to, to treat the wounded. Because what Solomon understood, we've just now as a culture started to recognize that emotional health is critical. It's essential. If we're going to be people that beat the odds, that our relationships would change if we were emotionally healthy, if we practiced emotional intelligence, that our jobs would look different, our parenting would look different. We wouldn't have moments where we blow up. I mean, as a coach, I coached soccer um, when I was younger, and it's uh, about the only sport I was really honestly ever good at, and I remember coaching a three, four, and five-year-old team. I mean, right, like, they can't even spell the word soccer. And I remember the first game I ever coached having a parent storm the field as the game started because his son wasn't in. And he's starting to get really angry and really frustrated, and he's, he's walking as fast as he can to me, and he starts to kind of raise his voice, and I'm like, sir, like this is not the place, and he grabs his son, and he storms off the field, and he doesn't come back. I'm like, what just happened? We've all been there. And in the recent research, in the last probably 50 years, but specifically in the last 20 years, and the 10 years, and now it's New York bestsellers, you, you see these books on emotional intelligence. But the thing is, is that God knew 3,000 years ago when Solomon spoke it that this was essential for a life well lived. And so while research is confirming what Solomon already knew when he said it 3,000 years ago, let me just give you some of what they've already discovered. That 58% of your job performance is tied to your emotional intelligence. That 90% of people who are considered top performers in whatever industry they happen to be is tied to them being emotionally intelligent. That 90% of those high performers, what they have in common is emotional intelligence in a really high level. And to get really kind of practical, to hit your checkbook, what they found is that people with high emotional intelligence versus low emotional intelligence, when you equalize their education and their experience, the ones with high emotional intelligence will make $29,000 more a year. To get very, just direct into your checking account, that's the impact high emotional intelligence can have. It's either the leading cause of a great relationship or the demise of a relationship. This is critical, and this is why Solomon says... Better a patient person than a warrior. And so when Solomon's laying out this better than, he's presenting, he's presenting to us a contrast. He says, look, there is the one with a plan to take the city, and then there's the one with a plan to take control of his own life or her own life. Now, what I want to do, because we only have a short amount of time, is I want to give you a tool. It's a very practical tool. It's very simple, but this tool kind of speaks to what does it look like to have a plan to take control of your own emotional life. For some of us, it's a great reminder because maybe you've already been doing this and you've never thought about it. For some of us, this can be a game changer. 
because it will help you to deal, whether you're a teenager dealing with a bully, or whether you're in your professional life dealing with your boss, or in your marriage life, or in the course of just everyday life. This is a tool that, if used, can make a difference and can help you take steps towards becoming emotionally intelligent. It will not make you perfect, but I guarantee if you're willing to do it, it will give you progress. The, the framework of this tool is uh, an acrostic. It's W-O-O-P. It's in your message notes. And, um, and for those who like to take notes, I've given you a box there. For those who do not want to take notes, you just want the actual resource and tool, I've made that available at EncounterChurch.com forward slash W-O-O-P. And in that, we'll give you a worksheet to actually, it's about seven, eight pages long, to help you walk through and to begin to practice this tool. Um, if you're a parent, this is a great tool for your kids. If you're in your professional world, this is a helpful tool. They've seen this used and applied. It's been around for about 50 or 60 years, but it makes a difference in a lot of different arenas. So let me kind of unpack this tool. What this tool does is it gives us an ability. What Solomon is trying to get to was that it gives you an ability to focus on the freedoms you still have, not the frustrations you're dealing with. Because what happens when we get in these emotionally volatile moments is that we fixate and focus on our frustrations and our circumstances and with people in our life. And we forget that we still have freedom to control ourselves. And that's a fundamental key thing that this tool helps to remind us of. Instead of focusing on frustration, focus in on the freedom. So the first is W. And what it stands for is wish or want. It's like, hey, let's just be candid. What do you really want? Think about that problem, that emotional situation. Maybe it's in conflict as a couple. One of you blows up and the other one stonewalls and retreats. And let's say that you're, you're the stonewaller. Okay? What does this look like? Well, my wish is that when we have conflict, I don't shut down, I speak up. Okay, that's a great, that's a great want. That's a great wish for a healthy relationship emotionally, right? To, not to shut down, but to speak up, okay? Then you move to O, outcome. And this is the critical one. How do you know that you've gotten there? How will you know? What will that moment look like in that conflict where you will say, yep, I just experienced it? And you need to close your eyes. You need to visualize it. You need to be specific about this because this matters. Well, how will I know that I didn't shut down? I spoke up. Well, because instead of storming off to another room, I will sit down in the chair. I will take and I will say, what you just said really hurt me. And I don't know if you meant it the way you came, at, came out your mouth, but you need to know the way it hit me makes me want to just not talk to you for three days. If I say that, that'll be, that'll be how I know I, I accomplished it. Okay, great. You write that down. Then you go to the next step, which is obstacle. What is the main inner obstacle? This is key. It's not external. It's internal. Remember, we're not focusing on the frustrations of your circumstances or that person. We're focusing on the freedom you have internally because it's better to be a patient person than a warrior. And it says that what we want to do is focus on the inner obstacle that holds you back. Well, what's going on on the inside, my trigger is when they get angry, I feel me already starting to close up. They don't even have to say anything. I just see them start to clench their fist and to raise their voice, and I start to shut down. I start to pull back. That's my trigger. That's, that's the inner obstacle. I see that I shut down. 
or whatever that may be. For some of you, your trigger may be anger when you see anger or you experience anger. For some of you, your, your trigger, right? I, I live with this. My daughter, she's, she really is. I love her. She's like a little gremlin. You don't let her get wet and you don't let her get hungry, right? I mean, if something happens, we call that hanger in our house. She knows the word hangry because we t- we're teaching her to communicate her emotional, physiological states to us for our safety and hers too, right? And so it's like, I'm hangry right now. Okay, good. Let's feed you, right? So maybe for you, it's when you're hungry. For me, it's when I'm tired. I, I have never had a good conversation and a conflict with my wife when I'm tired. Never. Some of you, you can do it. If I'm tired, it is not the time to talk about fill in the blank. How our relationship could be better, our finances, like no matter what is that could be, that could be loaded with conflict. When I'm tired, it's not the time. And that's where at moments where, where I practice this, because this is the next thing, is plan. And the plan is built around this. When I experience blank internally, then I will take this action. So for me, when I'm tired and we want to talk about something, and it's like 10 p.m., and that really is like my witching hour. I start to shut down internally, and I have to say, Jenny, that's a really important subject and topic, and to be honest with you, I don't think I can give it the time or the mental energy that it deserves. Could we set a time tomorrow, maybe right after Ella goes to bed, to talk about it? And that's my trigger. When I am tired, and there's something that's going to be emotionally charged, then I will say, I don't want to say never or no. I just want to say not yet and give you a time where we can talk about it. And in our relationship, that has saved us from having pointless conversations. Because those early on, I remember we would have these, these moments and I'm wake up the next day and be like, what in the world happened? What, what did we even argue about? You know, where you forget like this small thing that turned into this nuclear blast. And this one simple plan of when X, then Y, has really revolutionized our relationship. It's do it this, maybe it's you're in a conference room and when your boss calls you out, right, you're going to bring your bottled water. Then I'm going to take a sip of that bottled water and I'm going to, to breathe and let the anger that I just felt or the frustration I just felt pass by and then put my bottle down and then respond, not react. Because that's not a good moment for me to react emotionally to that statement. That these simple, this simple tool of knowing what you want, of being able to identify specifically visually what that outcome would look like, of owning up the obstacle internally that could prevent it, and then being, ha- being willing to have a plan of when and then, what that does is gives you an ability to start to move towards emotionally healthy relationships, emotionally, emotionally healthy circumstances and situations where you respond thoughtfully, not react carelessly. And whoop, there it is. That's it. That's the simple tool right? Sorry, I had to. I'm so sorry. I had to. Some of you understand. Others, you Google it, right? But that's it. And encounterchurch.com forward slash whoop, okay? Um, so I am um, in college. My uh, undergrad was essentially in the realm of biochemistry, and one of the classes I took was in animal psychology. It was specifically around training animals, 
And um, so I spent a lot of time at the zoo for that class. We, we had to learn how to train animals and learn how to, like, you know, bomb dogs and uh, drug search dogs, all this crazy stuff. So it was a really cool class. But because I spent the time around the zoo, even though I'm allergic to every living organism on planet Earth because I have horrible allergies, I have this soft spot for animals. And um, one of them is the emperor penguin. I love them. And aren't they so stinking cute? I mean, they're, they're like dressed up, always ready to show up and look good and have it together, right? And they live in this cold, brutally cold place. And what they lack in an ability to fly, they make up in being fly. Sorry, I had to try that one too. <laughs> Sorry. Right? But they're so good. They look so good. But the thing I really love about emperor penguins is the male emperor penguin. You see, the male emperor penguin, what most of us don't realize is that the female will lay the egg and in this really cool interchange will pass the egg from her feet over to the male's feet. And that the emperor male penguin, the female will leave immediately and she will go and travel hundreds of miles to begin to go hunt and to store up and to fatten up because she's going to bring the food back. And these male emperor penguins will walk around in brutally cold and dark circumstances for 90 to 120 days. During the course of those three to four months, it will be dark for 20 hours a day. The wind chill will get down to negative 90 degrees. And you think it's cold in New England, Right? Negative 90 degrees consistently. They have no food. They will lose 50% of their body weight in the course of those three to four months, waiting on the female penguin to come back with food. And they will carry their young around nonstop to stay warm after the egg is hatched. And I look at those animals, and I am profoundly inspired by their love, by their like diligence, and the way that they're disciplined, the, the ability to suffer long, to keep breathing in, because their nose has got to be so long. But what they illustrate, I think that's powerful, is that the reason this is so important is that their patience, their ability to suffer, their ability to keep breathing in, in 20 degrees, right, 40 degrees below, 90 degrees below, for, for 20 dark hours, for three to four months, their patience paves the way for life. That what happens in those cold circumstances is life and warmth and something beginning to be born that on the outside looking in should never be able to flourish there. And that Solomon presents this better than statement because Solomon recognized that at the end of the day, this has an impact. This can even in the coldest circumstances, even in the darkest moments, being willing to be people who practice emotional health can have significant impact in our lives. It's the very, like, the very greatest example in our faith is Jesus himself. The night before he's crucified, he's in a garden and he is so emotionally distressed. He experiences something that is incredibly rare in, in the medical field. He experiences a blood pressure that's so high, a stress that's so intense that the capillaries along his forehead burst, and he literally started sweating blood. This is a really rare medical experience that only happens to people who are in extreme, extreme, extreme emotional distress. And that Jesus that night, in that emotional distress, in, 
in this private garden with a couple of friends, cries out to God, with, and, and his friends are there, and so we have the words they heard him say, where he says, God, not what I want, but what you want. Because he knew he was going to go to a cross to suffer and to, to bleed and to die so that you and I could have life. He was the ultimate example because of his patience, because of God's ability to long suffer. Because here's what's cool about this statement. This is the first time in Proverbs 16 the long nose is ever applied to man. Up until this point, every single passage that had long nose was applied to God. Because God ultimately was the one who could keep breathing in and not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Who would be gracious and merciful when, quite honestly, there are moments where I'm like the two-year-old with the tantrum. And that God and his long-nosedness paved a way for life, and for peace, and for hope, and that he's the example. It's his love. It's who he is that ultimately should inspire us to be emotionally healthy. For those who are Christian, it should inspire us to respond out of what he's done for us. For those who are not, it's a promise that he holds out that no matter where we are, no matter what struggles we're going through, that he can give us a restart and a refresh, and a renewing that enables us to live it out. That that's the promise he holds out for all of us. That in the end, it is better to be a patient person than a warrior. That it is better to have control over oneself than even control of a city. And that if we're willing to be people who who are paying attention to what's going on in there and to, to start to practice and walk out this plan, then we really can find, whoop, there it is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you embodied, that you were the example of the one who would suffer long and breathe deep, that you were the one who, when you're, when people ridiculed, you didn't re react, that you responded in love. And then I recognize for some of us in this room or some of us listening today that we are in circumstances that are dark and cold, or we're in jobs where it's emotionally brutal. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you would remind in us this word this week that we would be people who take the time to walk through and imagine what you desire to do in and through our lives. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.